You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. Here come the geeks. Hello, I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And this is The Film File. Yes, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. And that's us, just in case you were trying to figure that bit out. If it wasn't, we, we, if, if it wasn't, wasn't just like someone else's show, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How are you, Andy? I'm in good spirits. Oh, that's good. Give it a week and I'll start to be grumpy because, uh, oh. as you know, it's we're only a month to Christmas. Gets closer to Christmas and you hate that Christmas thing. I don't hate it. Okay. I just hate how people overdo it. I mean, I've done nothing yet. I've not bought any no, presents. Me neither. I, I'm always a last minute shopper. I should be taking advantage of the fact that Black Friday deals have been running this week to have jumped on some cheap presents. But no, it'll be a week before Christmas and then I'll be moaning that Amazon aren't <laughs> delivering them fast enough. But I've done nothing yet. No presents bought. I'm absolutely unprepared. There's no decorations up. But I got home from work last night, walked in and went, oh, what? the house is tidier. Why, why is why is the hall being done? Why is is someone decking the halls? That's the sign that the wife is getting ready to put up all the decorations. So Does she sing the after song? my shift on the first of December, I guarantee I'm coming home to the place being lit up like the fourth of July and me moaning about the electric bill going out the window. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the wife is very Christmassy. She's the one who gets all excited and puts the decorations up early. I think that the decorations shouldn't go up until at the earliest the fifteenth of December. Oh, I agree. But I can't control it. She waits until I go to work and then she does it. And then it's too late for me to take it all back. So um... <laughs> I've always been, my, my parents never put it up too early, uh, put the decorations up round about the 15th. Uh, and it's something I've always, always sort of carried on. And thankfully, we're one of those households where, you know, we, we have a tendency not to leave it late, but just give it a bit yeah. of time because then you've got to take it all down and then, yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Everybody knows what it's like. But we have a neighbor who uh, I think was the Halloween had just gone and we noticed Christmas decks up too early. Yep. Far too early. Yeah, we, we've got a couple on our estate who, um, as I've been walking home from work, I just walk past their houses going, yeah, it's November. <laughs> I get right grumpy about it. But I do like Christmas itself. Yeah, me too. I've got no problem with Christmas itself. I just, you know, let it be Christmas. Don't let it be two months out of the year. And anyone who's listening to Christmas music at this point in time, Christmas music, and I said this every year when we're talking about Christmas, Christmas music isn't good. So stop listening to trash music, especially in November. Anyway, yeah. That's, that's, that's my little Christmas grumble. Uh, they'll, they'll, no doubt be, they'll no doubt be more Christmas grumbles coming ahead. But <laughs> Oh, well, I'll, I might have to change my question then for this week. <laughs> As you know, over the next few weeks, um, after this week's one, we're going to be shifting to a Christmas focus for our deep dives with the start will be next week when it's a film that you have close to your heart that I've never seen. So uh, quite looking forward to uh, exploring yeah. that one. Yeah, It's going to be is. interesting to see whether this is going to be uh, Andy agrees with Lee or Andy thinks that Lee needs to go and get his head decked because that it's always up in the air between us two when it comes to us recommending well, someone. That's the film. thing. That's, the, that's that little bit of joy that we bring is the, the, the right to contest each other. And uh, um, we, we do, often. I've um, been watching our little uh, reviews on YouTube. If anybody's not got around to it, Andy's been posting our film reviews. Again, hop onto there if you just want to check out what we're saying and you've sat through. Reviews without the news. 
Yeah, that's a good way. There you go. You're always good. You're good at that. <laughs> We've got some new listeners out there. Um, there's a there's a guy who started at work, Oliver. Hi, Oliver. Who's uh, playing catch up by going back and cherry picking some episodes, and he's he's really enjoying it. He's he gave me he just said to me out of the blue, he was like, really good podcast, really enjoying it. I've listened to this and listened to that. I was like, thanks. And you know me with my social awkwardness, I didn't know how to respond to it. So it's just like, thanks. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Quick run. <laughs> Would, I'm aware that if people jump onto the older episodes they're listening to news from like two years ago which most of it's out of date and never happened so giving the reviews another avenue out there where people can just like jump on because you're never too late to come onto a film you know there might be a film that you didn't see from three years ago that you go absolutely "Ah, what does everyone else think of that's why i'm trying to archive them i used to do it as little compilation episodes for the show as little bonus fillers of like just the reviews just the reviews but i think the youtube channel because i can also leave in some of our mistakes and flubs because uh, I, oh. I try to put the reviews things out more or less unedited but the rest of it you get to see how we how we discuss around things a bit more and how like sometimes we we both lose our train of thought and go off on a tangent there, there are anything between five to ten minutes usually because if we've got a lot of reviews i'll snip it into two different videos so they're just little bite-sized chunks for people to do and i'm planning the same with the deep dives i have got the last few deep dives archived ready to compile together and i'm going to put them out every now and then as well so it's right. just another way for people to enjoy the show however they want. Hey, and we said this before, that uh, if you are enjoying the show, do us, a, do us a massive, help promote the show, help get us over. That would be, if you're looking for something to get, get us for Christmas, that's the perfect Christmas gift. Uh, help us boost our, our listenership. Get the word out to all fellow movie geeks. If, uh, if you've got a friend, likes films, introduce them to the film file. There you go. Don't send yeah. us a card. Send us a friend. Send a friend. Don't, don't actually physically wrap your friend up and post them to us. Oh, because, I don't know. I'd be up for that. Well, you've got more storage space. You don't hoard junk like I do, but I've got oh, no well, Let's not get into that friend. conversation that we just had <laughs> before we started. The reason I'm not in my uh, in my usual studio today. Mm, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the clutter say, monster has been in place. Oh, blimey. Don't get me started. I could rant for ages. I've also been watching the Godzilla films this week because Monarch just got me remembering elements from the more recent films and wanting to revisit them. So I've watched all of the recent US ones and I've now lined up in anticipation of Minus One coming out in two weeks. Shin Godzilla and a selection of the classic Godzillas. I'm just all godzilla at the moment and uh, I can't wait for Enjoy Minus Monarch, One. by the way. I did a, a, so did a bit of a catch-up the other night. It's so good. It's great how it's tying in to everything that we've kind of seen in little snippets of like newsreel footage, etc. Classified documents which came up on screen briefly. We're getting to see those elements. The structure of the show, like like we said last week, if you're not if you've not watched the more recent films, I don't think that you'll miss out because I feel that you could come into the Monarch series as a complete fresh set of eyes and watch this and then watch the films afterwards and get some extra elements. I think it's such a well-crafted show. Can't wait to see how it all plays out. Yeah, enjoying it. Hey, so we do a thing. We We do. do a thing every week where we ask you to get involved in the show by giving you our social challenge. And our social challenge last week, Andy, was? It was coming off the back of me mentioning that I felt seen in a character in Saltburn uh, because came from the same place as me, has the same kind of social awkwardness, admittedly, turned into something different throughout the film, no longer identified with him, but I felt seen on screen. So we asked, what is a character in films that you've identified with the most? A character that makes you feel seen 
in movies. Well, how did we do? It was a tough question, to be honest. I did have a few people comment to me, either on social media or at work, that they struggled over this one. Because yeah. sometimes you don't realise that you've recognised yourself in a character. And it takes a lot of thinking to work it all out. And um, We'll go through the handful of suggestions that we got. So over on Facebook, on my main page, Stephen Blaine Young, <laughs> Jedi Master Yoda, just hanging out on Dagobah and cackling to himself. And anyone who's met Stephen knows that he is prone to just like uh, be chill <laughs> and cackle quite a lot. <laughs> Throw out occasional comments. Um, so yeah, I, I, I can kind of see that. <laughs> so um, good choice, Stephen. That did make me chuckle. On the film file page, Lindsay Story. <laughs> well, I'd love to say Black Widow or The Bride from Kill Bill, but as Owen Cooper has pointed out, I'm definitely Randy from Scream, boring everybody with my horror film knowledge. The Grand High Witch was also mentioned, but I hope it was just in jest. <laughs> thanks, um, thanks. I've spoken to Lindsay quite frequently when she comes in for the quiz at work each month. And yeah, she could host this show. Let's be honest. She knows her stuff about films, but horror in particular, she knows intricate details of. And she will talk to anyone about her love of horror and what her favourite films are and what works in the films. Marvellous. Great choice. Yeah, I think I'm going to agree with Owen Cooper there that you're definitely Randy from Scream. <laughs> and Owen, Owen also re like added... Um, of course, I'm literally Ryan Gosling. <laughs> but Lindsay's story seems to think I'm mouth from the Goonies. I actually struggled a lot with this one. And uh, I think Lindsay's right on this one. Yes, Owen, you are mouth from the Goonies. I know from talking to you, you are mouth. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about this week's one is that the answers, have, pretty much everyone's got me chuckling when I've read them because they've all been really like self-analytical things where people realize parts of their identity that they didn't know. Craig Wright over on X Twitter posted two gifts saying these days it is. And the gifts were William Defense Foster from Falling Down. Falling Down, yeah. The Michael Douglas character. That's worrying. And V from V for Vendetta. <laughs> so yeah, That's very worrying. <laughs> so uh, I don't want to bump into Craig on a bad day. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure if he's having a good day, he's going to be a really lovely bloke. But on a bad day, things could go a bit askew. Over on Mastodon, Famira Films said Pippi Longstocking in the Swedish early 70s version. God, I remember those. God, I remember I, I remember having to sit through them with my sister and, and hating them. But there you go. Salty Red Popcorn, probably Marvin in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I appreciate that. I've communicated with you many times, Salty Red, via social channels. Y you're not completely Marvin. There's elements of Marvin in all of us, I think there is. But you you're, you're something more than Marvin. However, Marvin does make me laugh quite frequently, and so does Salty Red, so maybe it is right. And um, this was a one which ties in nicely, and it's a good one for us to finish the ones which have been posted by other people. John, who's at UK Film Nerd on Mastodon. Dante, from the Clerks trilogy, always moaning about life, but never actually doing anything about it. And this is the two weeks on the run that someone suggested an answer that has tied into our deep dive of this week. Wow. It's almost like a premonition. I, I was going to mention Clerks, actually, as, as part of my being seen. I used, to, uh, I used to run a comic shop. Yes, the glory days. Uh, and, and it was, that kind of banter was, was very, very similar to Clerks. And when I, when I eventually saw Clerks, I went, oh, that was so us. So, so <laughs> us. Um, but I'm going to go with Rob from High Fidelity. Because yeah, I, I can see I, that. I am so Rob. My albums just like my comic book collection or anything that I collect has to be in a distinct order uh, and then yeah. can be by genre. I do that with my, uh, I've started doing that with my Blu-rays now. 
Um, so yeah, Rob, uh, and just the trials and tribulations of falling in and out of love. That that was me. So yes, Rob. I as soon as I saw that movie, I went. This is the first time anyone's made a, a movie about me, and I've started to realise a bit of a slack. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> um, in my youth, it was uh, it was the geek kind of characters in films like Breakfast Club, which I definitely identified with. But in more recent history, I've come to realise that Paul Rudd's characters in quite a lot of films reflect me, uh, especially. In I Love You, Man, his Paul Claven character is me. It, he's socially awkward. He finds it he finds it difficult making friends, but he's a loyal friend once he gets to know them. He's got that rapport, but he doesn't feel that he's secure enough to have that rapport. And in This Is 40, I completely related to the character of Pete in that. It probably helped that This Is 40 came out when I turned 40. And so all the life's issues that he was being presented with and how he was reacting to them was what I was seeing, what I was seeing around me at the time. The dad in me, you know, I've been a father for so many years and I see myself in fatherly characters on screen very frequently. Strangely, Marlin in Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo actually taught me how to uh, let my kids play. Stop being a a protective father Um, because I've recognized some of my own like worries about like, oh, no, don't do that. You might get hurt. Oh, don't. don't, I don't want you doing this. Don't want you doing that. And he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I need to let them grow. And Pixar taught me that through Marlin. And I need to go to TV for ones that I am definitely, definitely related, relating with. How in Malcolm in the Middle, I okay. am so much how. Right. Um, you know, his bumbling attempts at holding his family together represents me really well. But even more than that, the TV series The Middle, Mike, the dad, because he's got that sardonic humour. He's got that laid back jokey attitude, but also the sternness when things need to be stern. He balances everything that life's thrown at him, family, money issues, etc. With, I wouldn't say casual abandon, but it's more like a, a, a level-headed approach to things. It's like, we can do these, but we can't afford that. Let's just get on with it. Yeah, Mike from the middle is me. Don't know the show, so uh, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll watch it just to see if I can spot you. I remember we. I remember telling me something. I saw you in a TV show, and I. Oh, you were the dad. That's it. See, I'm always dad. <laughs> you were the dad out of out of Mitchell's versus the machines. Now, not personality wise, yes. but certainly the look of, of, of the dad from it, and that's and that always reminded me of you. Yes, yes, <laughs> that, I, I, I can't deny <laughs> they modelled that character on me. They actually contacted me and said, "Are we okay to do this?" Yeah, they were I was fine. Like, Go for it. Uh, yeah, so I, I generally relate to father characters on screen quite frequently because that's what the past two decades of my life has been. And so I can spot so many so many patterns in behaviours and how you try to hold things together, how you always want to be that cool dad, but you're not always that cool. But you also use that lack of cool to kind of embarrass your children when you need to. <laughs> so that leads on to... Um... On to this week's question. And Andy's love of Christmas kind of inspired this one. (laughs) So this is about Christmas films, but not your traditional Christmas films. The argument always is, is Die Hard a Christmas film? It is or it isn't, depending on your point of view. For me, yes, it is, because it's about a dad trying to get back to his family on Christmas Eve. Andy, you disagree with that, don't you? I generally feel that if that film can exist at any other point in the year, then it's not necessarily a Christmas film. And there's nothing within that film that couldn't be related to other parts of the year. So the question is, um, a traditional Christmas film that's not a Christmas film that you start to watch as we enter into December. You can still claim Die Hard because I'm with you on that one. But, But seasonal films that aren't necessarily a Christmas film 
as in snow, etc., etc. But you watch them at this time of year. Let us know, and you can do that by... Contact us on social media, Facebook, X Twitter, Mastodon, etc. Just search for Film File UK. We're on there. The question usually posts out on the Wednesday, which gives you a few days to think about it before you post your answer, and a few days to, for it to get through to us. Or you can email us with the answer, podcast at filmfile.uk. Or if you're on Spotify, the question should be there in the show notes, and you should be able to respond through there. I say should because it's been hit or miss over the past couple of weeks as to whether it pops up on the app, but it does pop up on the desktop version. I've already got one straight off the top of my head because there's a film that I watch every Christmas that has nothing to do with Christmas, and that's Back to the Future. Okay, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, films that you watch. I mean, Hard Day's Night for me would be part of that Mm. because I remember as a kid that you always got it was got a Beatles film on at Christmas. So that's what I would associate with Christmas more so than um, the Santa Claus or anything like that. Let yep. us know. Looking forward to hearing your non-Christmas festive films. But let's talk about this week's show. What have we got for you this week? Well, we've got a deep dive into Kevin Smith's seminal indie classic, Clerks. We have reviews of Wish. Which which is going to be an interesting one, because I think we both come from different viewpoints on that one. I think we do. I've also seen Napoleon this week, so I'll bring me thoughts on that one. Before we both round off the reviews by looking at a big TV event that took place only yesterday. 60 years in the making. And that's the return of Doctor Who to the screens. But before any of that, let's start with this week's box office and the news. <laughs> time at the box office we've had napoleon marvels looks like it's really really dropped out of any chance of working its way back up we've got the new taiki watiti film so andy what's the box office like over in the us this weekend the hunger games the ballad of songbird and snakes remained at the top spot with 28.8 million this weekend napoleon took second place on its first weekend taking a total of 20.4 million Wish opened in third place with 19.5 million. Trolls band together in fourth place with 17.5 million. And Thanksgiving rounding off the top five with 7.3 million. Here in the UK, Napoleon went straight in in the top spot, 3.8 million. Makes it 5.2 million, including the two days of previews from last week. The Hunger Games Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes takes second place, 2.7 million. Wish Opens in third place, taking 2.4 million. Saltburn in fourth place, another 572,000 added to its total. And the Marvels rounds off the UK top five with 483,000. Hunger Games so far worldwide has taken 154 million. Napoleon's opening worldwide figure is 78.8 million. And Wish has a disappointing 49 million to open its run at the box office. The Marvels significantly dropped off now, 188 million taken to date and not likely to do much more in the weeks to come. So Napoleon's opened reasonably well. Ballad of the Songbirds and Snakes, the Hunger Games prequel, has more than performed and outdone expectations, even though it's underperformed compared to the previous films. But we have to remember that this one only cost 100 million to make. So it's generated enough traffic to be profitable. But it's wish that is kind of the dis- disappointment that Disney films just aren't finding a, finding an audience. Yeah, it's the latest in a long line of, of, of box office flaws for the House of Mouse. Where did it all go suddenly wrong? Are we still in the previous regime that has a, a, a hangover on that? Or has Bob Iger, his return, you know, really sort of uh, not being the 
shot in the arm that the company needed. I mean, I've read this week that the Marvel's Iman Vellani says the box office is Disney CEO Bob Iger's problem. Mm. She's basically said that she's, that, you know, she, referring to the Marvels and it's underperforming, she said that she's happy with the product that was given out. She's glad that people are enjoying it. Does she fret about the box office? Well, no, because that's not her concern. They've delivered a film that they wanted to deliver. She's more than happy with what was put out there. It's for the financial heads and Bob Iger to sit and scramble and go, where do we need to sort things out? Where do they need to sort things out? I lower budgets yeah stop expecting every film to pass 700 million and keep your budgets like 100 to 150 at most and then you've not got that stress we're still post-covid we're still building up we still got very picky audiences out there you can't afford to go to the cinema constantly and so they cherry pick which ones stand out so you'll get the huge successes like barbie and Oppenheimer, but everything else will have to suffer as a result we are still in struggling financial times, stop making huge budget films and wish apparently cost a significant chunk of money. And it's going to struggle to get it back unless, and we've spotted this in, spotted this over this year, unless the drop off on week two isn't bad because all the focus in the past has always been on opening weekend. And that's the sign of whether something's a success or a flop. But we saw earlier this year with Elemental, it was looking like to be a complete bomb, but it ended up just about scraping even by the end of its run because the holdovers were the holdovers were strong. It didn't lose a lot of traffic. Wish might benefit on the run up to Christmas. As it gets closer to Christmas, yeah. families might start to gravitate towards it. And you get this generally with whatever animated film is released in late November, that they release it in late November knowing that they'll get an initial burst of business. But as it gets more and more into the festive season, they'll start to generate good traffic again. So it might do well by the end of it, but it—I mean, this this is this is a bit of a disaster after disaster after disaster for the Disney Animation Studio. Strange World last year sorely yeah. overlooked. Yeah, and a great great little film. And, and it is the fact that most people have Disney Plus, and yeah. no, without trying to second guess what's going off. Hey, it'll appear on Disney Plus in a couple of weeks. We'll just yeah. hang on and have a night in and watch it. I mean, I know that they've now got into the habit of getting it. It's now getting back to like three months minimum before they go on to Disney Plus. And if they do go on there early, they go on for a paid premium rental. After the COVID years, when literally everything was dropping on there so swiftly, people have been trained to expect them to drop swiftly, even though they're not anymore. Disney made this, made this bed for themselves. They now need to work out how to get people to get out of bed and watch the films. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Over at Marvel, Pinch Salt Corner has reared its ugly head and we've had some more Fantastic Four news. Yes, and it is an ugly head that it is reared because there was two bits of news, one which was complete rumour mongering and one which is kind of suggestive that there's been talks. First of all, that the suggestive that there's been talks. Anya Taylor-Joy, she's in talks to play one of the villains in the Fantastic Four movie. Right. Rumours at the same time have sprung up that the Silver Surfer is going to be gender-swapped. And so these two bits of news have somehow smashed together to be reported by the mass media and the clickbait sites. She's, she's in talks to play Silver Surfer. None of this is confirmed. This is just two separate bits of gossip that have come together. It's the one ad one adds 26 law. Pretty much. Even the rumours that they're going to gender swap the Silver Surfer didn't start as gender swapping Silver Surfer. It started as Galactus's Herald might be a female. And anyone who knows the comics knows that Galactus 
has had quite a lot of heralds. So why couldn't they have someone like Nova, for example? And if they do go the Silver Surfer route and make Silver Surfer a female, again, the comics have it there for you. Uh, Juno, the character from Earth 829, was a female Silver Surfer. So... It's not that this is unprecedented and it's just Disney with some woke agenda, which is what this has been spun out of control into. Oh, and dear. People who don't understand what South Park actually is, who watched that Pandaverse episode of South Park, which was hilarious, but they don't realise that that was actually criticising the people who get all het up about wokeness in films and things being gender swapped and making it clear that, is it really worth getting a, a bee in your bonnet about it? Let's just see what the end product looks like. If Anya Taylor-Joy is going to play a female Silver Surfer, you know what? I'm there for it because she's great. And I initially thought, do they need to have a female Silver Surfer and won't it damage the character? Because Silver Surfer realised the good in mankind because he, grew, he got an attraction to Alicia Masters. Why can't that be changed? Because on reflection, I thought about it and went, well, does it have to be Alicia Masters? Could it not be Johnny Storm? Yeah, or it could still be Alicia Masters. You know, there's no yeah. problem with someone realising the good within someone of the same sex. This yeah. can happen, you know, people. It happens in the real world. Oh, yeah, you're going to be blowing brains there. There's minds exploding all over the place there, Andy. Oh, they've got to be doing videos about this show online saying that we've turned woke. And <laughs> any publicity is good publicity as far as I'm concerned. It's all gossip and rumour at the moment around Fantastic Four. Even the casting news that we announced last week we said pinch of salt because nothing's confirmed. It's all people who are rumoured or have been in talks with. We will know for definite when we know for definite. So try not, people, to get embroiled in this argumentative, hate-fueled social media nonsense that's going on at the moment. Just look at what, what Anya Taylor-Joy could bring to the film and look at whether or not it is important that an androgynous character on a surfboard is androgynous. Yeah. Um, in other Marvel news, it's now official. The filming is underway again on the third Deadpool film. Marvel Studios executive Wendy Jacobson confirmed the restart on Instagram earlier this week, posting a photo from the film um, saying, this Thanksgiving, I'm grateful for the gifts of being back at work and watching the sunrise from set today. Everyone's expecting that the Deadpool 3 is going to be kind of the saviour of Marvel's decline at the moment because everyone loves Deadpool, let's be honest. Everyone's yeah. there for a bit of fun. And with it being the only proper Marvel film next year, we're not talking about the Sony ones again. I'm not going off on that rant. Yeah, you've done that. It gives some good breathing space after Deadpool for people to kind of remember what they like about Marvel before Marvel returns in 2025. It's confirmed that it's going to be R-rated in the US, probably a 15 in the UK, and tonally in line with the previous two films in the series, with uh, Sean Levy, director, telling Wired last month, some of the jokes are dirty, some of them are cultural observations. Our movie is very loyal to that DNA too, with tremendous Marvel and Disney support, making fun of and being self-aware about everything, including themselves. July the 26th, 2024, mark it in your calendar. It's probably going to change release dates because this has already shifted twice. Strictly staying in uh, Pinch of Salt Corner, Marvel are rumoured to be considering a second season for Ms. Marvel and Moon Knight and are considering Sam Raimi to take over as uh, the director on Avengers Secret Wars uh, with the idea that Avengers, the Kang Dynasty, will be changed to Doctor Doom. But again, purely, purely rumours that's out there on the interweb. Let's move over to DC, eh? So over to DC. And uh, we had the casting news that we gave last week 
about Superman. And there's been even more casting news this week. Yeah, it's coming thick and fast, isn't it, at the moment? It's it's ramping up, ready to get in front of the cameras and be shooting. Warner Brothers Pictures has hired Skylar Gizondo from Santa Clara Diet and Booksmart as photographer Jimmy Olsen. Yes, Superman's best friend. Uh, apparently, it's a bit of a fan choice as well. There's been comments online that James Gunn's paying attention to what the fan choices are. He has replied to say he does read the fan selections, but that doesn't influence him in any major way. Usually, because he's a fan himself, he finds that he agrees with them and he's already been talking to them because he loves the comics and he sees aspects of characters within actors around him. Uh, it's just coincidence that all his fan selections that have been most loved are ones that are getting picked. Uh, Portuguese actress and model Sara Sampaio is going to be Lex Luthor's doting assistant, Eve Tessmacher. Uh, oh, I can't say without having Gene Hackman's voice in my head. Tessmacher! <laughs> uh, uh, first appeared, she wasn't from the comics. She first appeared in uh, Superman the movie, Richard Donner's classic superhero movie, I might add. For those who don't know who Jimmy Olsen is, I mean... <sighs> You clearly don't know Superman if you don't know who Jimmy Olsen is. He's Superman's best friend. He works alongside Clark Kent and Lois Lane at the Daily Planet. And uh, he buddies up with Superman in... Superman's pal. Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. Generally seen as a jokey kind of side character at the start. He's been He's been ramped up to be a more important element within the Superman franchise over the years. And you can't have a Superman film without a Jimmy Olsen, as far as I'm concerned. All this casting news is basically rounded off the rest of the cast. And, you know, we've got Nicholas Holt taking on the role of Lex Luthor, which is just marvellous, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to the original comics where Superman and Lex Luthor were practically around the same age. We know that yeah. Nicholas Holt tried out for the role of Superman. He was one of the top contenders. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, interesting that they're making. I, I do like the sort of older, almost kingpin-esque Lex Luthor, but hey, Superman is only as good to some extent as his Lex Luthor. That was profound. <laughs> Superman Legacy will follow Superman as he's looking to reconcile his Kryptonian heritage with his human upbringing. The embodiment of truth, justice in the American way, guided by human kindness in a world that sees kindness as old-fashioned. July the 11th, 2025. I'm so excited to see what he does with Superman. Yes, yeah, yeah. Spinning back over to Disney for a couple more of the properties that we've been waiting for. Tron Ares, which is Tron 3 by any other name. During the summer, the actor strike shut down production on that just a few weeks before it was able to hit his original start date of shooting. But now that everything's over, they're quickly moving to get the third Tron film back on track. And Collider reported this week that filming is going to officially kick off on Vancouver, Canada, right after the holidays. The story for Tron Ares will reportedly focus on the emergence of Ares, a sentient program that can cross over into the human world that is not ready for that kind of contact. And Jared Leto is going to play the human manifestation of that program. It's expected to spend more time in the real world than the digital ones, the first two movies. It's unclear if Tron Legacy will star any of the past cast like Jeff Bridges, Garrett Hedlund and Olivia Wilde. We'll have to wait until it gets closer to production to see whether they at least pop up for a brief cameo. Given the ending of Tron Legacy, where Olivia Wilde's character came out into the human world, I think it'd be a missed opportunity to not at least reference her or have her within there for a brief scene because it seems that she's the forerunner for the Ares. Anyway, I'm excited. I love the Tron films, both of them. I know that some people thought that Tron Legacy was kind of a pointless remake rather than a sequel, but I th I thought that it just needed to be like that because it gained it kept the energy of that original. And the other Disney property is Star Wars. Of course. As we know, over the past few years, one name has been prominent in you know all the positive Star Wars 
comments out there, and that's TV series creator Dave Filoni, who um, was behind the scenes on pretty much every one of the shows that we've seen and loved, Mandalorian, Star Wars, Shoka, etc. Well, he's now took on the role of Chief Creative Officer of Lucasfilm. He's going to work more directly with Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy and alongside veteran producer turned head of department Carrie Beck to originate and shepherd the next generation of Star Wars shows and movies. Filoni started his role within Star Wars working alongside George Lucas on the Star Wars Clone Wars series nearly two decades ago and he's been heavily involved in all the various shows of late and whilst the films haven't been generating good buzz the shows certainly have. Uh, speaking of Vanity Fair, the writer, producer, director says the new role gets him into the development process much earlier than his previous role as an advisor. Uh, in his words, in this new role, it's opened up to basically everything that's going on. When we're planning the future of what we're doing now, I'm involved at the inception phase. I'm not telling people what to do, but I do feel I'm trying to help them tell the best story that they want to tell. I need to be a help across the galaxy here, like a part of the Jedi Council almost. My only concern with it is that one of the criticisms that even we've levied at Filoni's output on the TV shows is some of it is a bit too lore heavy. Yeah. And if you haven't seen Clone Wars or Rebels and, you know, 500 episodes of a random animated series, you can kind of feel a little lost at times. And it feels that the characters that you get to see in live action you don't know enough about to be able to care about them as a result. Hopefully, we won't see that too much. I expect it will happen. You know, it's inevitable. Star Wars is supposed to be a linked universe. There needs to be some element of that. But rein it in a bit. Let the casuals not have to watch a whole animated series of which only about 20 episodes are actually worth watching. Yes, I said it. Star Wars fans, start flaming me. Post videos online about how woke I've become. I don't care. <laughs> well, I... I... <laughs> don't know anything about Bad Batch or Clone Wars. So I, I want to be able to watch The Mandalorian and not go, who's that character then? Uh, and I and I certainly had that problem with Ahsoka because I I, I didn't know. I, I was bombarded with stuff that I hadn't seen or been referenced to before. So I was out. I've never made it past episode two. We'll see. We'll see what the future brings. But it has generated some positivity around the Star Wars fandom who've been very negative over the past few years, that Filoni is going to be a bit more in control. Now, for a project that's going out of control, let's talk about the Scream franchise. Yeah, no one saw this coming. So, two stories from the Scream end of the world. So, let's start with Melissa Barrera. So, yes, uh, Melissa Barrera discovered this week that when you post something sensible on social media, sometimes your bosses don't like it. She posted on social media a post which doesn't take sides in the conflict that no one should be really commenting on if you're not embroiled within it. And that's what's happening with Israel and Palestine at the moment, which is, it's an ongoing conflict that has been present throughout my life. And it's a complicated issue, but people are stupidly taking sides and making enemies. Now, Melissa Barrera didn't take sides. She okay. just called out that there's, there's atrocities on both sides and people need to, there needs to be a peace and innocent people need to stop getting killed. A message to that kind of intent. And then got sacked. She got fired from Scream 7, dropped because of her controversial statements. Because it's controversial to say that you want peace in the world. She followed up her post with another post making clear she was not taking sides with the terrorist cell of Hamas. Not all of Hamas's terrorist cell. Need to make that clear. But the ter she wasn't taking sides with the atrocities. She was just saying that there needs to be innocence protected through all of this. 
But that made no difference. She'd already been dropped from Scream 7, which meant that they had to reconsider where the story was going because the end of the last Scream film kind of suggested a bit more story for that character. And then, within 48 hours, Jenna Ortega dropped out of the film and the official word from both her side and the studio is scheduling conflicts for Wednesday. The coincidence of it being two days after they just dropped Barrera has not been missed by anyone. And everyone suspects that this is Jenna Ortega's gone. If she's not being allowed to be in this film, I'm having nothing to do with it. This now means that this whole new wave of the reboot of Scream, which was focusing on these two sisters who had so much story to tell, has had to go back to the drawing board because they don't have their lead characters. Now, the studio said that Ortega officially dropped out of Scream 7 uh, some time ago, and this has been in the works for a while. There's discussions about her exit was, was being had during that period. So it sounds like the studio are quickly scrambling to put together a positive spin on this, but it, uh, I think wiser heads prevail and draw your own conclusion but it looks like that she's dropped out i think if the studio if if she'd dropped out months ago then the studio would have announced it yes it just all seems a bit too coincidental the timing of all of this it might just be a huge coincidence but this feels like we're not getting told the full story as a result they're now scrambling around on ideas and the latest gossip and rumours, and again, pinch of salt corner because it's not confirmed, it's just come from scoopers, is that they're apparently going to contact Neve Campbell with an offer to come back to the series for the next film and potentially bring back some additional characters from the earlier parts of the franchise. I think that's the only way they can salvage this to some degree, but it'll still leave the it'll still leave the brand tainted with this whiff of... Self-destruction. Really. Yeah, self-destruction by not allowing your stars to actually you know, voice genuine concerns about the world around us. I'm going to go into a a multiverse that we never knew about, where films from different times meet up and and cross over. And that's what's about to happen. Did you know that there was a multiverse for The Karate Kid? Well, there is now, because Jackie Chan and Ralph Macchio are going to unite both corners of the franchise and star in their own Karate Kid movie. Yes. Machio and Chan released a video this week to confirm that they're reprising their popular characters from the very different two Karate Kid films, now meaning that are both canon? Are both within the same universe? I don't know what's going on. No one's too sure as to how this approach, because this Karate Kid movie, we've been told in the past it wasn't going to be linked to any of the previous Karate Kids, but now it looks like it is because they're going to be reprising the roles of Daniel LaRusso and Jackie Chan's hand character from the 1984 and the 2010 remake. And as we know, Daniel LaRusso has also been on the Cobra Kai series, which was an official continuation of the original Karate Kid story. So where does this tie in with this? We won't know until we see more details, but we do know the award-winning The End of the Effing World and I'm Not Okay With This creator, Jonathan Entwistle, is directing the new Karate Kid film, which the studio has said is going to continue the mythology of the original franchise. There's a global search starters to find an actor to play the new main character. The Kid, basically. It's going to be a teenager from China now living on the US East Coast who finds strength and direction via martial arts and a tough but wise mentor 
is that Machio? Is that Chan? I don't know. I don't know which one's going to be the mentor. <laughs> Rob Lieber, who gave us Peter Rabbit, wrote the script. And in addition, we've discovered that the production team behind Cobra Kai have also been serving as advisors throughout the creative process. John Hurwitz, Josh Hild, and Hayden Schlossberg, they've not been directly involved, but they've been asked to give story pointers to writer Rob Lieber. And also Jonathan Entwistle has been contacting them regularly to get some advice on what approach they should be taking. So whilst they're not producing and whilst they're not creating, they've been seen as like the, the protectors of the franchise. So it does suggest that maybe, maybe it is going to tie into the Cobra Kai universe, but maybe not. It's also confusing. It's an alternate universe. Doctor Strange is going to turn up at the end and uh, sew the holes in time back together. And then Doctor Who will pop up on the other side and go, wibbly bobbly time and fix it. Everything's meshing into one. (laughs) Up is down, ladies and gentlemen. We don't know where we are. What we do know, though, is that uh, it's been talked about for ages, but there's finally been proof that Axel Foley, yes, Eddie Murphy, is returned in Beverly Hills Cop 4. There's been some pictures this week, folks. Who knew? The world just gets crazier. Yes, uh, these pictures were released. I mean, it's We've mentioned it a few times on the show, but we were still unconvinced that there was ever going to be a Beverly Hills Cop 4. But yeah, there's uh, there's some shots being released to tease us as to what to look forward to. Hopefully better than Beverly Hills Cop 3. I'll be happy with that. At the same time, we also got a shot for our first glimpse of the Nosferatu film from Robert Eggers. Yeah, that looks great. Looks scary. I'm anticipating trailer at some point. Because once you get to shots getting released, that usually means they're close to cobbling a trailer together. So hopefully, hopefully Nosferatu. I mean, it's Eggers. Of course, Nosferatu is going to tick my box. But hopefully it'll find a good audience as well. A couple of projects that caught my eye that are going into production. First of all, Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese are set to executive produce a TV series reimagining of Cape Fear for Universal Pictures. Which Amblin produced and was basically really Scorsese's first ever uh, mainstream film, for want of a better term. Yep. This marks the first ever TV collaboration between Spielberg and Scorsese. And the, the teaming with the series creator, executive producer and showrunner, Nick Antosca, who gave us The Act, Chucky, and, most importantly, episodes of Hannibal. Yeah, we loved Hannibal. The series is going to be dubbed an unconventional take on the IP that draws from the original novel by John D. MacDonald and the two feature film adaptations, the second of which Scorsese himself directed back in 1991 and is going to be a deep dive sometime next year. They've dubbed it a tense contemporary thriller that examines America's obsession with true crime in the 21st century, following a pair of married attorneys when an infamous killer from their past gets released after years in prison. I'm there for it. I I think there's a good creative team behind that. And I think it is one of those tales that, it can be made to be relevant to the world around us at the moment. Let's see how this pans out. And the second project that made me smile, and I know you're a fan as well. Go on. The Saint. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about we were going to talk about that. Yeah, Doug Lyman's bringing The Saint back. It's been rumoured for some time. I think we talked about it on the show ooh, some way back. So it's it's actually happening now, is it? It's going to happen. It's definitely happening. Doug Lyman is confirmed to be attached to direct and oversee the development of a reimagining of the Saints franchise for Paramount Pictures, with Bridgerton and Dungeons & Dragons star Reggie Jean Page remaining attached to star in the title role and will executive produce the feature with Rory Haynes and Saurabh Noshivani writing the script. And for those who don't know The Saints, it started off a, as a 1920s book series. Yeah, by Leslie Chatteris, yeah. And follow Simon Templer, a.k.a. The Saint, a Robin Hood-esque criminal and thief for hire. 
Uh, it was turned into the 1960s TV series famously starring Roger Moore and the 1997 film infamously starring Val Kilmer. There have been multiple other versions throughout the years, including radio and TV adaptations with actors like Vincent Price, Louis Hayward, George Sanders and Adam Rayner. And this new version is dubbed a completely new take that reimagines the character and world around him. Hopefully, hopefully it's going to play out. Quickie news roundup. So first of all, I'm a fan of the first two films, uh, the Babysitter franchise. The third film is still going to be happening, according to director and producer McGee. The Babysitter films are comedy horrors, and they just tickled the right, the right funny bones for me to make them work. McGee, I've never been a fan of, but he surprised me with the Babysitter with a good Not bit seen of charm. Him. Worth seeing, worth me dropping in. Worth drop dropping in, if only because Samara Weaving, who is an absolute scream queen legend of modern of our modern era is in both of them well worth checking out michael sheen who very frequently portrays public figures in biopics has now been cast as prince andrew for amazon's okay. upcoming three-part miniseries a very royal scandal which is going to be focusing on that interview that went terribly wrong for prince andrew the blackening is getting a sequel whether you want it or not you'll know from my review that i did not like that <laughs> film but <laughs> it made more than 18 million at the US box office on a budget of just 5 million. So, of course, they're going to churn out another one. Tim Story is back to direct. You used that term really carefully, then, didn't you? I did. I kept it, I kept it as close as I could. You've not forgiven him for the Fantastic Four yet, have you? Not at all. Okay. No. Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror is coming back for a seventh season, which will head into production later this year. Brooker, Annabelle Jones, and Jessica Rhodes are all expected to be returning with story details and the number of episodes are being kept under wraps. Heat 2, we've had confirmation that Adam Driver is in talks to appear in Heat 2. Michael Mann himself confirmed that this week. There's no details of who he's going to be playing, but come on, everyone expects it's going to be De Niro's character, Neil. Nicholas Cage is going to slow down. <laughs> His accountant's going to be really pleased by that one. <laughs> he's recently been churning out up to six films per year. His past financial abandon left him needing to pay for a lot of debts. He said this week that as he's approaching 60, he's got planned to slow down a bit. In his words, 60 is coming up. I'd like to read a book a week. I want to spend more time with my daughter. I'm taking stock of what's really important. Maybe not make quite as many movies. Having a baby girl is profound. Totally new experience. I love it. So he's, he's wanting to just slow down. He's clearly sorted out a lot of his financial problems. I get that. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you hit that age and you just realise that you need to take time for yourself. And for those people who were enthralled over Scott Pilgrim Takes Off and got to that little mid-credit sting and went, oh, season two, don't get too excited because Brian O'Malley has said that there are no plans for a season two at this point in time. Ooh. It is words. We loved what we did. We put it all in there. We don't have any ideas lying on the floor. We pretty much put them all in. I never say never, but right now it seems like it would take about 50 different miracles simultaneously for another season to happen. So we'll see. People are always complaining about how shows get cancelled after one season. So we hedged our bets immediately and tried to make it a self-contained one season. And I get that. Maybe in sometime in the future, we will see a return to Scott Pilgrim. But in the meantime, no more Scott. Just enjoy what you've got. Make sure everybody watches it. We loved it. Yes. And that's it for the news for this week. But uh, a sad passing. It was just after we recorded last week's show that we heard the news of, well, um, not a household name, but if you've seen any of his performances, he really did stand out. And uh, we're talking about Joss Ackland. Joss Ackland, who was age 95, passed away on the 19th of November 
He's been suffering ill health and he died at home in Cloverly. You might not recognise the name, but you'll certainly recognise the face because this is this is an actor who's been prominent in the industry in various support roles ever since like his uncredited role in Landfall in 1949. And throughout the decades, he's been there for everyone. For myself, probably first was introduced to him as D'Artagnan's father in my, one of my favourite films of all time, The Three Musketeers from 1973. And he was also the voice of the Black Rabbit in another one of my favourite films, Watership Down. But it was as I got into my teenage years and saw him in films such as Lethal Weapon 2, when he plays the South African diplomat Arjun Rudd, who, I mean, we spoke last week about quoting lines of dialogue from films as part of your everyday lexicon. And diplomatic immunity is one of mine. <laughs> yes, I remember that line. Usually followed by Scott or someone else going, it's just been revoked. <laughs> Instantly recognisable. And he also popped up in another real favourite of their decades, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, where he played the character of Denomalous. Yeah. The sinister person who wants to eradicate Bill and Ted from the history of that future utopian timeline and control it himself, which... Coincidentally, this week was the first time that I realised that Denomalos was actually Ed Solomon backwards, and Ed yes. Solomon was the writer of the Bill and Ted's films. It's taken me decades to realise that. <laughs> I would have helped you. I would have told you. I mean, we should have. I should have mentioned it to you. I feel. I feel so personally guilty for never mentioning it to you. When we did, when I did our deep dives into Bill and Ted, then I should have said <laughs> Denomalos is Ed Solomon. But yeah, he he was instantly mem memorable. He appeared in a wide variety, either dramas, comedies or bizarre sci-fi things that he had no clue what was going on in. And he also appeared famously in the Pet Shop Boys video, It Couldn't Happen Here, which was snipped down for the Always On My Mind video, which I recall reading an interview where he said he had no idea why he was booked onto that. It was, <laughs> it was a ridiculous concept. He didn't know what they wanted him to do, and he wanted to get a new agent at the end of it. You watch that video, and I still remember when that video released, and it was just like, I don't know what's going on, but that's Joss Ackland because he was instantly recognisable. I, I don't remember that video. I'm going to check it out once we finish recording. I, I have no memory of that video whatsoever. And probably by the sounds of it, it might be for the best, but um, <laughs> I'll check it out. Yeah, I remember him from from TV. He was in uh, many, many different shows. He was in Zed Cars. He was in Zed Cars. You know, if I got a chance to reboot a series, I would reboot Zed Cars. Mm. But yes, a, a great actor and a fantastic innings at 96. Highly recognisable. Do yourself a favour. Either check out Lethal Weapon 2 or Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and, and remember Joss Ackland in two of his most genre favourite roles. That, folks, that's this week's The News. <laughs> So, guys, you're still with us, still enjoying the show. Thanks very much. And as we said at the top end, what we'd like you to do as a Christmas present for Andy and I is to tell all your friends about The Film File. If you've got a geek in your life and they're not listening to The Film File, are they really your friend? If a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does anyone care? It's exactly the same thing. All you have to do is tell them. Head over to the favourite podcast platform, subscribe to The Film File. See if you can make Andy and I have the happiest Christmas ever. I'm not going to guilt trip you, but it's all on you. You can also get in touch with us and let us know your thoughts on films or any suggestions for the show. Social media channels, search for Film File UK. We should pop up on there. Get in touch. Drop us an email, podcast at filmfile.uk. If you want to go in touch and tell us your favourite films of this year, because we're getting close to the end of the year. It's Ooh, yeah. no time to start 
thinking about what are your top five. And we'd love to hear what everyone's top five are because we love to talk about them and love to say what we thought about them. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. This week, it's Deep Dive. We're going to take you back to 1994 to an American black and white comedy written and directed by Kevin Smith. His directorial debut. We're going to take you back to the wonderful world of Clerks. Salsa Shark. We're going to need a bigger boat. Do you have that one with that guy who was in that movie that was out last year? You should hear the barrage of stupid questions I get. What do you mean there's no ice? You mean I gotta drink this coffee hot? You'd feel a hell of a lot better if you just rip into the occasional customer. What kind of convenience store do you run here? Miramax Films presents... You think anybody can see us down here? Why? Do you want to have sex or something? Uh, can we? Clerks. Just because they serve you doesn't mean they like you. You hate people, but I love gatherings. Isn't it ironic? Directed, written, and produced, and edited by Smith, this film cost a staggering $27,575 that was paid for off the back of credit cards. It inspired a whole slew of filmmakers with that get-up-and-go, I-can-do-this attitude. It's made a star out of the director, Kevin Smith, who is a favourite amongst, well, most geeks. This is, in its truest sense, a cult classic, regarded as one of those pioneering independent films that, along with Richard Linklater's Slacker, set the style for the 1990s. It also launched Smith's View Askewverse. Talk about Marvel having a connected universe. Smith did it first. Yes, it's a skew universe of films, uh, which generally the, the main linking factor was two of the characters from this film that became their own characters throughout all of his properties going forwards, as well as credit cards. I know they said that he used credit cards to fund it. He also sold off a huge chunk of his comic book collection in order to bankroll this film. And I can feel that kind of pain because I can't think of ever selling my comic books. He has managed to, over the years, now that he's got money, buy back most of the titles that he sold. But wow, that's a dedication. In order to get this low-budget passion project, dream that he had of like making a film reflecting on the menial life of shop clerks. And anyone who's ever worked in retail or any customer-facing service job will identify with so much of this film. The stupid questions that customers asked being um, a section of the film that always creases me up because I've encountered that level of stupidity. Even the more ridiculous elements of the film, such as them slacking off to go and play the hockey match on the roof. Yeah, it's kind of taken to the extreme, but I'd be lying if I said that joining me in McDonald's days, we didn't have quiet nights where we used the source guns as a laser tag kind of thing around the back corridors, shooting each other with Big Mac sauce or mayonnaise. I think I'm that distant from my employment there that they can't take action against me for this anymore. <laughs> so I think I'm safe. But yeah, we on a quiet night, we'd get bored and we'd slack and we'd just like have fun because that's what you do to stay sane in this kind of retail and consumer environment. And this film taps perfectly into so much of it. And I think that's why it resonates, particularly with an audience of the mindset of myself who's worked in that environment and done the menial work. And, you know, you can relate, you can reflect. I remember the first time that I watched this, I actually watched this after I'd watched Mole Rats. I wasn't aware of Clerks, but Mole Rats captured my attention when that came out because of all the comic book aspects and Stan Lee was going to be in it, etc. But after I watched Mole Rats, I went back and watched this and 
I straight away went, wow, this was his first film. This is so well put together. The the film presents a day in the life of two store clerks, uh, Dante Hicks, played by Smith's friends, by uh, Brian O'Halloran and Jeff Anderson as Randall Graves, as well as their acquaintance, which includes the two local drug dealers, Jay and Silent Bob, played by Smith's best friend, Jason Mewes, and Smith himself, retrospectively. I remember hearing all the hype about this film before it came to the UK in something pre-internet dates where you just read the dailies and you read all the film magazines like Premier and Empire. And this film felt inspiring. I was just starting out on my journey as wanting to be a filmmaker at that particular point. And I saw this and was inspired. And it was, it, it literally made me want to do it. Not necessarily make films like Clerks, but inspired me to, to have a have a go at jumping into the industry where, hey, I'm a kid from Sheffield. I can't do this. Smith was a kid from New Jersey who just had the gumption, uh, the nounce, and the genuine love to be able to get a movie made. I'd never been as brave as Smith to rely on credit cards. But what I saw in Clerks inspired me several years later to write my first screenplay, which I sold. And I always got to think back to if it wasn't for seeing clerks and that DIY sense of just go out and tell stories about the world around you and the people you know, I, I don't think I would have ever put pen to paper in such a way. That and, and John Favreau's Swingers were just a huge inspiration to, to wanting to write and that kind of recognizable dialogue that, again, felt like the comedy side of someone like Tarantino, but felt believable where People on screen were talking about the kind of geek stuff Andy and I talk about all the time. Other people lived in that world and the classic, you know, working on the Death Star and being a, a, a contractor on it. And I, st I always use one of the lines from uh, Clerks 2, which is Lord of the Rings is a film about walking. I do, I do it all the time. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have so much love, not just necessarily for the film, but love for the whole idea of one of us making a film for one of us, if you, if you get my meaning. We had it in our question of the week earlier, characters that you identify with, that you see yourself. I certainly see a lot of myself in Dante Hicks. I too have been on that receiving end of a call early in the morning, asking if you can come in and work extra because someone's been sick and you reluctantly say yes and then spend the whole day saying, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Why is all this happening? I'm not supposed to be here. I've been that person. And there's a lot of elements of the character. And this is what's so good is that it's so darned relatable. And it's relatable because Smith himself was working at the very store that they filmed in. He was actually working at the store whilst filming. He's told stories about over the 21 days of shooting, there were some days that he was working from 8 a.m. till 9 p.m. And then as soon as the shutters came down, they were then filming up until 4 a.m. in the morning. And then he gets two hours of sleep in one of the back rooms before he starts his next morning shift. The guy managed to put his passion into it on barely two hours of sleep every night for 21 days because he wanted to make this film. The filming at night is the reason why the, the shutters were stuck down in the film. He's got the sign on the front saying, I assume you, we are open. And it's because they could only shoot at night because it was an operating convenience store. They had to set everything up. They had to clean it all up, ready for the next day. So they didn't have a lot of shooting time. And it's a great way to do it. I read a story that apparently Miramax picked it up simply on one line from the script. 
there was a reader who was like reading through the scripts to see whether or not they wanted to get behind it. And he got as far as the line, my girlfriend sucked 37 dicks. What? In a row? And laughed so much. He then ran to the VP of production, showed them that line. They both are in hysterics and realised at that point, this was a voice they wanted to represent. Yeah, that's right. They picked up the distribution rights following his run at the Sundance Film Festival. And that's kind of where I'd first heard about it. I had some friends who used to go to Sundance and mentioned this film to me and said, look, you're going to love this. This is so you. And I just waited for the UK release and heard bits and pieces uh, through the trades, through the film magazines before I finally got a chance to see it. And it's it's a joy. It, it reminds me of that rebellious nature of 1990s filmmaking. As I said, Slackers, Richard Linklater's film, made on a, a shoestring budget. John Favreau's uh, Swingers, all those movies launching so many careers. It felt like anyone could be a filmmaker. You didn't need years of, of film school. You just had integrity, talent, uh, uh, and the clout announced to go out and do it. And, and I've always admired Smith for doing that. He's always had the ability to basically make the films he wanted. It turned him into a, a bankable, if not star, then talent. He was picked up to write mm. Tim Burton's almost legendary Superman Lives. Uh, he wrote uh, a script of The Six Million Dollar Man. I've always actually preferred his writing than I had to his directing. His directing is so minimal uh, that there's no particular style to it. It's almost theatre. But I, I, yeah. I love Kevin Smith's writing. He always adds something in that I recognise, uh, even if I've not been keen on his film. My favourite film uh, with Clerks a, a Second is Chasing Amy, which I think is is so brutally honest. And, and talking about seeing yourself, I, 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 again, one of those films where I saw myself in, again, was, was Chasing Amy. Adore it. I think it's his strongest, most mature work. Smith's own films, like you say, he's, he's not the strongest of directors. I think his lack of talent of directing kind of benefits Clerks in a way because it feels like you are a fly on the wall within that store just watching these events play out. It doesn't need flashy gimmicks. It doesn't need stylized lensing. It's just a simple set up a camera and two people talking about Death Star being blown up and all the all the innocent lives that were lost who were just like manual laborers trying to build that Death Star. You know, those kind of conversations that we as geeks have on random days. The black and white aesthetic choice was deliberate because it helps them avoid post-production touching up that colours would need. A convenience store has so many different colours on the shelves, it would have been a nightmare if something didn't come across well. So keeping it as kind of like a grainy black and white, again, it makes it feel intimate and personal. Yeah, there's an immediacy, isn't there? You almost said like a documentary-esque approach to it. Yeah. There was original ending to this, which would have had Dante dying at the end when he's left alone in the store, ready to lock up, and someone comes in to rob them. And then it would have resulted with, while he's lying on the floor dying, someone else comes in and steals some cigarettes. Because that's how Smith thought that like it would be like a, a an ironic play on like his whole not-supposed-to-be-here-today. And The whole film was based loosely on the Divine Comedy. There's nine breaks in the movie that denote the nine rings of hell, and it's supposed to be his journey through his own hell of a day. But the original ending was never, never going to fly. It seemed a bit too dark. Um, audience is going to walk out of this feeling really, really let down. And so it was changed. There was also the removal of one of the scenes that was never shot, which was in the script, which was the wake that they go to which on the Clerks X DVD, there was an animated version of that scene. So you could get to see how that plays out. It was amusing, 
but it was unnecessary and it was a great taking out. And it showed that even in those early days, Smith kind of had a handle on, you know, I've got all these ideas. I'd like them all. Actually, that probably won't work. You know, Clerks is just a great rewatchable film about life. It's just people talking nonsense about life and the kind of characters that you interact with on a daily basis who are just so bizarre. Everyone in this car- in this film, I can identify with the people around me. Yeah. No matter how bizarre and how weird some of the situations are, they're all kind of real to me because I've encountered things just as bizarre, just as crazy, and conversations that have been just as over the top. The film was a success. It spawned I'm going to say two TV offshoots. One was a a pilot for a live-action TV series, which featured none of the original cast. Silent Bob didn't appear because Smith owned the characters and had no part to play in the the TV show. Uh, Apparently, it was terrible. There was the Clerks animated series, which was interesting. It was all right, though. It's not bad. I remember it playing on Channel 4 back in the day. Uh, it, it was clever. There was only uh, six episodes that were released, but I think you can find them on uh, a home release. Yeah. Clerk stories continued in comic form. The Lost Scene, for instance, appears as a comic adaptation. And then we had the two sequels, but none of them have the rawness and the edge that the original Clerks had. It was about a time and a place in the director's life that where energy that that need to put something down on film really really shines through yeah it's not my favorite i've got a lot of love for mall rats and i've got so much love for chasing amy uh dogma as well is is an interesting if not entirely successful film but i've always liked kevin smith i'd like kevin smith to be my mate because i think we would talk forever <laughs> about the stuff that we we like i listen to his uh, uh his podcast i think he is sort of uh, our geek leader to some extent. And if you haven't seen Clerks, give yourself the joy of watching it. It's raw, it's filthy, it's funny. It's about a time and a place when filmmakers, especially in this day and age when we've got so many different ways of, of releasing content, were doing something that came honestly from the heart. Every one of the Askew Universe films are kind of a sequel to this because there's so many interlinking characters and mentions and stories, particularly Jane Silent Bob, be it Chasing Amy, More Rats, Dogma, the Jane Silent Bob Strikes Back or Jane Silent Bob Reboot. But the actual two sequels to Clerks, they don't quite nail it. Clerks 2 starts off well and it's looking at like, it's looking yeah, at it a point in the life when you're in your 30s and you're reflecting on where you are and you've got married and should you be married it just that final act becomes a bit unnecessarily crass yeah i totally agree it's half a good film for me and clerks 3 i think it's a better sequel than what clerks 2 was but it relies on nostalgia more than anything else it it's got a great little backstory that, you know, um, Randall suffers a heart attack. So it's it's Kevin Smith drawing on his life again because he had his health scare and his heart attack. And that's what led to him having Randall have the heart attack in this. And Randall reflects on what he's actually done that will benefit the world and decides that he wants to make a film on his experiences working within the Quick Stop Groceries. And it basically becomes like an origin story of Clerks, but it then relies on just going, oh, remember this bit from Clerks? Remember this bit from Clerks? And it doesn't quite become its own film. It does have a great closure and an emotional impact in the final act that just about salvages it and makes it worthwhile. But neither of the sequels have been anywhere near this very first raw and 
immensely engageable film of characters who generally aren't really likable characters, but by the end of it, you come to love them. Yep, I, I, I totally agree with everything you said there. I think whatever there's a Kevin Smith film in the world, that's all that matters. Not going to always like it, and more often than not, I've not loved them, but I always find something in it that I like. He does have a very, very unique voice, and it all comes down to his origin story, where he was bitten by a radioactive piece of film and made clerks. <laughs> As it approaches its 30th anniversary, Andy, where can we... Clerks. It's not available free on any streaming, but you can rent it on pretty much any service. Or just go and buy that. Just go and buy it. If you want to pick up the DVD, get the Clerks X one or get the Blu-ray. It has all the same extras. There's loads of content on there about the history making of and also the deleted scenes. Well worth checking out. We'll be back again next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So one film that I've seen with Andy, a film that Andy's seen without me, and just a pure bit of. TV heaven. Where do you want to start, Andy? Start with Napoleon? I'll start with Napoleon. My dear Josephine, I've just won a great battle. But those in power only see me as a sword. I suggest you take the throne as king. Shall we vote? This vermin has routed Europe. I follow in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and Caesar. Will you join me? Napoleon. Ridley Scott's latest release is another historical epic, this time drawing upon the life of Napoleon Bonaparte, his rise to power and eventual downfall. Beginning in 1793 during the French Revolution, the film opens with the execution of Marie Antoinette, where the young army officer, Napoleon, played by Joaquin Phoenix, stands watching. Later that year, the officer is tasked with managing the siege of Toulon and successfully implements a strategy to take the city, gaining recognition for his tactical mindset, which serves to swiftly promote him up through the ranks. With France in a continued state of upheaval following the revolution, Napoleon swiftly rises to power, eventually becoming emperor after a military coup deposes the political regime of the time. All this time, in his personal life, Bonaparte falls for and weds the aristocratic widow, Josephine, played by Vanessa Kirby. But the pair struggle in their relationship due to the distance between them as the lead amounts campaigns of war and their inability to have children. Napoleon is every bit as visually polished as you'd expect from Ridley Scott. The costumes are granted layers of period detail from the rags on the back of the poor to the opulence of the wealthy. And along with the clothes, the locations and set designs suitably ground the film in the period. So much so that you can almost smell the streets of France. The level of detail helps you immerse yourself in the troubled history of the country of the time. In addition, the battles are stunningly presented with details to the strategy, the weapons and the brutality of the campaigns certainly impressing. Although maybe the poetic license of having Napoleon fire cannons at the pyramids was a strange choice and it makes it look almost like Napoleon didn't quite know what he was actually doing. But still, visually superb filmmaking often complemented by well-chosen scores by composer Martin Phillips. However, that's pretty much all the film has going for it, as in between the battles, it all feels a little flat, and the pacing of the story doesn't allow any time to really grow to care for anyone on screen. The very complicated post-revolution France is skimmed past almost on fast-forward, and how Napoleon rose to power during it is sadly skimmed over as a result. He seems to simply go from low ranks to leader at the change of a scene without ever taking time to show how he built up the friendships through the ranks that benefited his rise to power. 
we are simply asked to accept that overnight he became well-known and popular. But this film is presented as a look at Napoleon as a leader and lover, or so the trailers suggest. So the focus is on his romance with Josephine. Sadly, however, this feels almost like an afterthought at times. And aside from the occasional reading of letters, there appears to be absolutely zero chemistry between the two. Whether this is down to lacklustre writing, overzealous editing, or the rather monotone performance of Phoenix, someone who's usually so much better than he is in here, is uncertain. But the result is that the love between Napoleon and Josephine never feels organic or believable. Kirby, to her credit, does well in trying to lend something to the fleeting moments that she gets on screen. But when your co-star is seemingly playing stoic throughout, her attempts are for naught. I felt that the film told me nothing about Napoleon that a GCSE textbook wouldn't cover, and it had about the same emotional depth. There is no attempt to get under the skin of who Napoleon was as a man, and it's simply a look at the strategist that he was, which would be fine if it didn't seem like it was also trying to look at his personal life. Ridley Scott is famous for ignoring historians in order to simply present entertainment on screen. This time, however, he appears to have ignored both. Yeah, the, I, Vanessa Kirby is the only reason. I've, I've just heard so much good stuff about her performance that that's the only thing that makes me interested. She's not given enough to work with, though. That's the problem. Right. She's great at what she, like at the small fleeting moments that she's got, but she's not got enough presence. And Josephine should be a more prominent character through Napoleon's life. A film a million miles away from Napoleon is Disney's 100th anniversary gift, I guess, to all Disney fans. But did we love it? Let's talk about Wish. Who is ready to have their wish granted? Now that went well, don't you think? So I look up at the stars to guide me and throw gosh into every morning I'm talking, I am talking. I wish. So I make this wish. In a magical kingdom known as Rosas, a sorcerer king, voiced by Chris Pine, grants each of the citizens one wish, which may or may not be granted. Asher, voiced by Ariana DeBose, fails to become his apprentice, but realizes that the benevolent king isn't all he seems to be. When she wishes upon a star, see what we did there, a star that soon comes to earth, sprinkles magic across the kingdom and leads her in a head-to-head -head battle with King Magnifico. So this is their centenary film, accumulation of, well, what history? And most of it seems to get referenced in this film. <laughs> this film has sly nods to Peter Pan, Bambi, uh, uh, wishing on a, uh, upon a star, musical uh, numbers. But for me, it just falls flat. It felt joyless. Uh, and that's not what we should be feeling from a film that celebrates 100 years of imagination. But you feel differently, don't you? I do. The story's slight. The film is a snappy 95 minutes. But I felt it had a charming message about our, our dreams, desires, here represented as wishes. To be honest, it should have been called dreams because he's not protecting people's wishes. He's keeping their desires and dreams. They're the very thing that make us who we are. And if we forget what they are, we forget ourselves. And there's also a message in, within this film about how tr where true power really emanates from and how even the great and benevolent can be corrupted by what they perceive as a good act and how it can get out of control and become something more sinister. Magnifico fears that some wishes could lead people to rebellion or crime. 
which is a, a very pure way to look at it. But in taking these away, he's taken away who those people are and they've just become drones for his society. It's been much publicized, like you say, as being a celebration of Disney Animation's 100 years. And it does tap into the nostalgia center, sometimes in charming ways. I did like the plants and animals suddenly springing to life and talking. But sometimes I felt it was clumsily shoehorned in. The Peter Pan chewing just felt unnecessary. And it awkwardly makes the film feel like it's trying too hard to be something other than what it is. Had it not been the celebratory year, many of those nods probably wouldn't have been forced necessarily. And it would have allowed the film to simply be a fresh original story idea from the House of Mouse. And perhaps it would have landed a little better. I enjoyed this. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed this. I've given it three and a half out of five. It's not in the top tier of the more recent modern Disney. No, we're not talking Moana. We're not talking Frozen or Tangled kind of levels. But neither is it down in the pits of Brother Bear and um, Chicken Little. This is somewhere in the upper mid tier for me because I'd be lying if I said that I didn't have a smile on my face for most of the film. And one scene in particular which all I'm going to say is Dancing Chickens, had me chuckling like a lunatic. I could not stop chuckling as that whole scene played out. It's silly, but it's also got messages. And I was just drawn into it. I thought the music was hit or miss. There was a few really good songs in there. In particular, at all, at all costs, knowing what I know, and this is the thanks I get, was three songs that kind of like, I went, yeah, these are good. The rest of the songs felt like it was forcing in unnecessary exposition when they could have just done a normal dramatic scene. But it worked for me. And one thing that worked for me is the charming animation style, an almost storybook illustrative approach with like broad paint strokes, backdrops, etc., which felt like old Disney. And it even opens with a storybook once upon a time and closes with that. And they all lived happily ever after. And I loved that because that was like that. That was what I wanted from like a traditional Disney kind of film. It does just let itself down for me that it, it does try to celebrate the history of Disney animation rather than celebrate a good story. I'll go with that. I mean, you wouldn't expect anything less from Disney, but beautiful animation and sometimes absolutely jaw-dropping. The, the detail in the characters, I thought, was in incredible. Little movements that the characters made that just make them feel very human. And no, it's not the worst Disney film that I've ever seen. And I, I'll totally agree with, with your choice on that. I just found it formulaic. Now, originally when this film was planned, it was to go all out and do hand-drawn animation again. And maybe that would have made it feel more like a film to celebrate Disney's 100th year. But it just felt everything about it, including a lot of the music, there was nothing sort of hummable or sing-along to or stood out as a when you wish upon a star quality or even going back to Bruno's song from Encanto. It's not terrible. It just doesn't sparkle in the way that it should. Chris Pine's great. He brings malevolence and a lot of humor to uh, one of the first times that we've got a proper male villain, as opposed mm. to usually being a, a, a wicked witch. Uh, Ariana DeBose, fantastic singing voice, even in animated form, incredibly charismatic. Uh, a fan favorite of Andy and I's. Alan Tudyuk. Alan Tudyuk, yeah. But even that felt sort of shoehorned in to have a, a talking animal. And, and you know how much we like Alan Tudyk over here. It's not dreadful. It's just kind of average. And I think everybody expected more from this kind of celebratory film. 
sadly for me, it just didn't deliver. So it's a mixed opinion from the two of us here. For me, if you've got younguns, definitely take them along to this. Um, they will lap it up and you might be pleasantly surprised and find some enjoyment in it. If you've not got younguns, might be worth waiting for the Disney Plus release and then give it a shot to avoid any disappointments. Based on our past history of talking about films, decide who you agree with the most and make <laughs> your decision based on that. <laughs> I think we both agree on our next choice, which was part of the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. We had the return of Doctor Who. I don't believe in destiny, but if destiny exists... My house! It is heading for Dominoble. Your fight is with me! I don't know if I can save your life this time. Doctor Who. You know what, Andy? I've been giddy for this since it was announced. Uh, David Tennant returning to the role of the Doctor uh, for an adaptation of uh, a story from Doctor Who Weekly, which I think is the first time a, a Doctor Who story has been adapted from another source. We got the Star Beast. So this was an adaptation of the story that was conceived by Pat Mills, John Wagner, and drawn by Dave Gibbons way back in 1980, which featured the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker. I believe it was Doctor Who magazine, round about issues 19 to 25. I, I don't know. I never read it, funny enough. Uh... I probably still got them in my collection, to be honest with you. <laughs> this, Yeah, this is the first time that I think that they've actually just more or less adapted wholesale a, a strip from the comics the beloved beat the meep has appeared multiple times throughout the publication history of the magazine and the comic strip within and it was always a fan favorite because it's this cute fluffy ball of fur that isn't as cute as you initially think i kind of have mixed i have mixed opinions on how well it's been adapted but i'll let you talk first Okay, so when a spaceship crash lands in London, the Doctor, still reeling from his rather odd latest regeneration, puts him on a collision course with old friend Donna Noble. And if you remember way back when, uh, if Donna Noble remembered her adventures with the Doctor, then it could spell the end for her. It was great seeing Tennant back. 13 years since Tennant was in the role, but he's still has that incredible energy and charisma that he brings to the screen. No wonder he's a fan favourite because Debbie Tennant never dials it in and he certainly didn't on, on this particular episode. It was great. I was never a fan of Donna Noble. thought she was always one of the weaker ones, but here she felt necessary and it felt necessary to the plot. Uh, she's now married, has a trans child, which isn't just a, a casting gimmick. No, we've not gone woke. It actually plays into the plot. Uh, the meat extraordinarily voiced uh, with mischief from the great Miriam Margolis is a relevation. Uh, kind of cute Furby-esque character initially, that then, well, spoilers, isn't quite what it seems. When a brilliant bit of model design and uh, some fantastic animatronics. Uh, enjoyed it. Wasn't brilliant Doctor Who? It was great, Doctor Who, and then just fed into, as it should for a 60th anniversary special, fed into the to the nostalgia. Clearly, everyone was having a gas doing it. There's a, a lot of energy, perhaps too much energy. This could have worked over two episodes for me. It all felt as a lot of Russell T. Davies and New Who does compacted into that, uh, that, that hour show. I would like to have seen it here and there breathe, but there was so much to like about it. Even Donna Noble, a character I didn't like, I enjoyed seeing her again. Yeah. It just took me back to a time and a place. Like I said, I've got mixed opinions on the adapting of this story to the screen. Yes, I loved seeing the Meep brought to cute fluffball life and Miriam Margolis. 
her voice goes from the really cute kind of neep to a sinister, like, I'm going to destroy you all, in what should have been a plot twist. And this is where one of the problems is, is that it played so close to that original story that I've read a couple of times. I kind of knew where the beats would be, and I was expecting the twist right from the offset. Uh, even the names of the Warth officers who are trying to capture the Meep remain the same as they were in the comic. And I, I know it's supposed to be a kind of nodding reference, but this has kind of created a slight problem because the comic books, the novels, the audio dramas have always been considered canon. They've always been considered part of the proper canon stories of whichever Doctor it was. And this was a fourth Doctor story. Now that they've adapted it for a David Tennant Doctor story, it's kind of eradicated it from the law. And it's worth noting that unlike things like Star Wars, etc., which has basically said, that, oh, that's not canon, etc., because it's never been referenced in the shows. A lot of the things that have been in the comics, books, audio dramas, etc., have been referenced over the past two decades in Doctor Who episodes. So they have made it clear to date that everything is part of the actual Doctor's legacy. And now they're kind of rewriting it. Now, I get that we're talking about something that is time travel, timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly, and he might have just undone his own history because you can't have continuity in something where someone can go backwards in time and change continuity. So maybe, maybe they just wanted to pay homage to the legacy of Doctor Who whilst adapting a beloved character in a great story. Because it is a great story. And the story does work. I did like the fact that they fitted that story in alongside the reintroduction of Donna. Yes, like you, I'm not a fan of Donna as a character, but I kind of cared for her, particularly for the first two thirds of this episode. It's only when she became the old Donna again that I was like, oh, that's the grating bit that I don't really like. But up until that point, I was like, oh, I'm actually I'm actually connecting with this character. I actually feel for this character. She, you know, everything that she's lost, a, a lot, like, you know, what's going on? But then she just becomes Catherine Tate at the end. and. It's going to be grating over the next couple of episodes because she's now Catherine Tate. Uh, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the production values, which have clearly been ramped up. Yeah, they've been spending all that Disney money, aren't they? Because uh, normally you get a, a battle sequence where there's two or three people in it. This felt particular battle on a suburban street feel epic. The amount of extras that they had, the effects work. Uh, the Meep itself, all really well done. Yeah, they're, they're spending that Disney money i had a friend of mine mention oh it's going to get all mandalorian i don't think it did it still had that slight british diy doctor who feel uh, the eccentricity of it all is still there it's not it doesn't feel like a, a disney show they've just got what they have to do to attract a bigger audience is to raise the production costs on it and production values and that's certainly shone through the set for the new tardis is ridiculous uh, loved it to death. It wasn't the best Doctor Who episode ever. And I've got the feeling, though, that what it's building to, the best is yet to come. So that's the reviews. Let us know if you agree or disagree with any of those. Andy, what's coming out this next week? At cinemas, catch the 20th anniversary re-release of Elf, the 40th anniversary re-release of Scarface, or new films Eileen, which I've got my eye on, and There's Something in the Barn. Over on Now TV and Sky, it's Sky Original Time, as Melissa McCarthy plays a genie granting wishes in a Richard Curtis festive oh, film called... You know what? Genie. I won't be watching that. Ever. Oh, I probably will. And also on Sky, A Thousand and One lands this week. On Netflix, been looking forward to this. The Bad Guys, A Very Bad Holiday, spin-off from The Bad Guys animated yeah, movie. Bad Guys. 
Uh, v for Vengeance lands this week. Disquiet and Pray for the Devil. And over on Amazon, Candy Cane Lane. Eddie Murphy's festive treat as he makes a bargain with a shady elf to win a neighbourhood festive decoration contest. And I can't be less interested. And that's pretty much it for the week. And that's pretty much it for this show. But before we go, and yes, we do this every week, let us tell you about our neat things. Stuff that we've enjoyed, stuff that we want to share with you. Andy, your neat thing for this week is? My neat thing is music. And this is an album that released in July this year, but I've only just gotten around to checking it out. And that's Blur's Ballad of Darren. Now, I've been a fan of Blur since Leisure came out in 1991. And I was blown away by the perfection of 1993's Modern Life is Rubbish before just about sticking through their popular Park Life and Great Escape era, but then loved their evolving style since then with their self-titled Blair album, 13, Think Tank, and in 2015, The Magic Whip. Well, this is their first album since 2015's Magic Whip, and Blair are a band who kind of separated and split off to go and do their own things, but seem to be coming back together every five to six years to just bring some new energy. And this seems to work for them because... This is their shortest album to date, but it's packed with melancholic reflections on life and the world around us. And it feels like the work of a band of buddies who realise every now and then how good they actually are together and they make musical magic. Magic Whip was decent but felt a bit disjointed, but this feels like it was a, it feels like it was all conceived to follow themes. And it's, I think it's one of their strongest albums. Alongside 13, which is a, another one of their pinnacles, this is very close to being 13 level of absolute perfection. After their years of their various solo projects, it's great to see them come together and use the different experimental musics that they've been doing separately and working together and bringing all that together to evolve the band that they were famous to be way back in the 90s. Blair were my Britpop. Oasis, secondary to me. Blur were mine, and I'd love it if every five years they will bring out another album of such perfection. I was never a massive Blur fan, but I, I, I never disliked them. But I was, I was never a huge, uh, a huge fan. But um, a band I admired, if you know what I mean, rather than yeah. liked. Okay, so my neat thing. I think I've talked about this on the show before. This is the trade paperback collections of the series Southern Bastards. Uh, a comic book series created in 2014 by Jason Aaron, who you'll probably know his work on Thor. His was the inspiration for Thor, Love and Thunder, and Jason Lauter. Uh, published originally by Image, it revolves around the culture of a small town in the American South, where football, American football to us, is everything, and things have a tendency to get personal and dangerous. It's a neo-noir classic. Now, as I said, I think I've talked about this uh, on the show before. Uh, fantastically done. has a gritty kind of 1970s feel to it. Reminds me of the sort of movies that people like Lee Marvin used to, star, uh, used to star in. Movies like Prime Cut, for instance. It's got a, a sweaty realism to it, uh, a nasty edge to it. And it's a, a refreshing change from superhero stuff. Jason Aaron is a master of dialogue and a master of, of characterization, with always a hint of dark humor to it. The art is sketchy and evokes deep South noir feel all the way through. Uh, I just recently read the last in the, in the series so far, book four. It's brilliant. Bring on book five. I'm thoroughly in with Southern Bastards. And that, folks, that's us done. Uh, hopefully, we'll be back to share an hour and a half of your much precious time 
by talking about all things geekery. This week, uh, all I've got to look forward to, aside from a few films to watch, is uh, I've got the last quiz night of the year at work, which is our festive quiz. So I've got my Christmas sweater ready to put on, and I've wrapped all the prizes up in wrapping paper because I'm that kind of person. Oh, bless you. (laughs) I've even got a prize for the losing team, which uh, hopefully they see the amusement in what they get. Is it a severed head? Uh, I can't give any spoilers. Oh, okay. It, it might it might be. <laughs> uh, but for me, I'll see what the uh, next week will bring. But in the meantime, do you have that one with that guy who was in that movie that was out last year in your video department? Here come the geeks. Here come the geeks. Yeah. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Like I said last week, me, me mum got me singing things every time that people say <laughs> something. Sorry. I'm not one of these people who trucks with this idea that a celebrity should not be, should not speak politics or speak about peace in the world and all that. They should just be on screen and entertain me. I want my celebrities to be human and I like it better when my celebrities have their own opinions and express them online. Nothing that Barrera said was controversial unless you personally are taking sides in the conflict. And this just says to me, that the producers on screen are taking sides on a conflict that they have no actual involvement in. We've said, we said it like brief, briefly on the show that we don't want to touch on like the world's issues at the moment because it's so, so complicated. And so it's a minefield to walk through yeah. to try to like work out what you're allowed to say and what you can't say with fear of someone like coming back at you. I just stand by the whole concept that why, yeah, I stand by Kirk's methodology of uh, why can't we all just get along? <laughs> Nicely put. <laughs> Where films from different times. I've, I started getting all Shatner then, didn't I? Okay. Uh, and then into us. I might go get a warm drink because I'm freezing my butt off. <laughs> <laughs> you can also get in touch with us. <laughs> you were giggling too much uh, then, weren't you? <laughs> Passion project. <laughs> Dream that he has. Excuse me. I think I've got you a cough now. The rest of the songs felt unnecessary exposé. Unnecessarily exposition. 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 Ex- yeah, you know the word. I'm going to rephrase that. Uh, word than gathering altogether to put into a graphic novel. Accumulate. Say again. Collections? Yeah. <laughs> Can't think. Uh, it's gone so damn cold. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>